0: Thank you for tuning in to another edition of the Business of Fun podcast. I am your host, Dave Wakeman, and today's episode is brought to you by my friends at Booking Protect. Any booking, any sector, anywhere, Booking Protect has you covered. To find out how your organization can offer your customers better peace of mind, a improved buying experience, and how you can generate a new source of revenue for your organization, visit www.bookingprotect.com. My guest today is Joe Rickson. Who is works at Seton Hall and who is also involved in NATSO. Um, I wanted to have Joe on the podcast today because Joe and I have been friends for several years. And Joe was instrumental in having me speak at NACDA, NATSO, this year in Washington, DC. Um, and over the years, uh, we've developed a, a friendship. And I have a better understanding of how Joe approaches ticket sales. And he has done some really, really interesting things that I think will be um, interesting for people to hear about. Uh, in this episode we talk about one of the things that first Joe first talked to me about was how they have a tr- work at Seton Hall to attract and keep young alumni because the the one of the big challenges in development these days is making sure that your alumni feel a connection and maintain a connection with your university and Joe has some really great ideas about that um, we also talked about how Joe works with the secondary market because he has a um, a much different take than a lot of guys on the primary market about, how, you know, how to work with the secondary market successfully and, you know, how to make the, those cha- those um, partnerships productive. And I think what you're going to hear from Joe is what is really a true partnership between the primary side and the secondary side. We talk a little bit about um, his work with Natso, you know, where he wants to see the organization. Um, we talk we spent some time talking about data um, and specifically how it helps him with pricing. Um, You know, we talk about this concept of leaving money on the table. Uh, We talk about one of the things that I preach kind of constantly about moving the customer up the ladder. Uh, Customer service relationship, uh, endless young people, uh, staff development. We kind of all kind of touched on tons and tons of different stuff. Um, I think you're going to enjoy my conversation with Joe Rickson. So without any further ado, here's me talking to Joe. I want to welcome my good friend Joe Rickson to the Business of Fun podcast. Joe, what's up, my friend? How are we doing, sir? I Man, I'm good. I'm good. Now, Joe, I know everybody should know you by now, um, but I'm going to tell you why I wanted to have you on today, um, because. You know, you do a lot of great work with NatsO, and it was because of you and Seth Mullen and Ryan Kent that I got a chance to speak at NatsO and visit NACTA this year. So, you know, I want to talk about some of that stuff. Uh, But one of the things that's really come out to me over the years, as we've had you know many private conversations, is how well how how focused you are and how consistent you are in your efforts to put the customer first and focus on customer experience, and especially coming from the college um, area and knowing how closely. The sports is tied to development dollars, you know. So I wanted to talk about a bunch of stuff like that because I think it'll be, um, you know, informative for people. So thanks again for doing this. Um, let me. My st- pleasure. My, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. Well, let me. So let me start out by talking to you about. I believe it's you who have, have always emphasizes the idea of sports being the front porch of your of your entire university. Um, Or if not, you're familiar with the concept. And uh, can you give me a little bit of your philosophy about how you tie in ticket sales to development to the overall way that you're positioning the the, the university right now?
1: Oh, absolutely. So um, starting from my time at Liberty under um, my you know, athletic director, Jeff Barber, at the time, to Pat Lyons, who's my athletic director now, they, they've always focused on, and they've even said this publicly, that you know, athletics really is the front porch to your university. So for many people, it's the the first exposure that they'll have. So um, you know, from a ticket sales standpoint, we're really the front porch to the front porch with the steps. And so it's really important that we provide a really good customer experience, um, not just from... Um, you know not just from a pick up the phone answering the phone concept but you know starting to transition into new technology offering them easy way easier ways to buy tickets and just making the overall experience as easy and as simple as possible so last couple of years um, we've done a really good job here of finding new ways to invest in technology that allows us to to um, to get new fans um, to make that buying process as easy as possible and then on top of that um, find ways to make, you know, a group buying experience easier for the group leader, and you know, moving the mobile tickets for students because we really think that'll improve their experience. So, um, just finding new and innovative ways um, to, like I said, make that that ticket buying experience just so much easier.
0: Yeah, and the the interesting thing that comes out of my conversations with you a lot is that you also understand the relationship probably better than a lot of people of needing to get. Young alumni into the building, so you can start cultivating them for uh, giving to the university. You know, as they grow in their careers and as they establish personal wealth, and as they, uh, you understand the power of the athletic department to make sure that the connection stays strong. And I think sometimes that's a challenge for a lot of people. You know, how do you work through that process? You know, like what does that thinking in the process look like for you?
1: It's just it's a it's a really it's a really it's a really tough proposition, especially now with the new tax law changes, to get people on board. You know, before it was a lot easier because you know, your gift at the end of the day was tax deductible, and, and it's not anymore. So we have to find more intrinsic ways to get people to get on board. You know, the way we do things, the way most colleges do things is, you know, there's a, a donation requirement attached to you know each seat level obviously the better the seat the more expensive the donation now it's a tax deductible um it's a it's a tougher sell for a lot of people and so for us we've just tried to mainly through our email marketing to focus on where that money's going how it's helping um and making sure that our fans understand that that you know they may they may see it as an extension of their ticket purchase and their ticket payment but at the end of the day that money is really going to contribute to bettering the lives of our student athletes. And it's, it's tough everywhere. It's really a, it's really a struggle to, to keep those alumni engaged and to get them on board, to start working them up. But at the end of the day, I think if you just, if you communicate with your fans, your mission, your values, like I said, where that, that information is going. Our pirate blue team did a really good job this summer. You know, they put out a video of, of all the facility renovations. I think just to remind people that that money is so important and it is so valuable and just to, you know, help them feel like they are playing a role in, the advancement of our university and some of the universities done across the board which is really cool. You know, they did a a 10% campaign this year was goal with the goal. I believe was to get, you know, 10% of alums to, to give back. I think they, they got that number. So obviously it's something that we're improving on. And I think something that, you know, hopefully over time, you know, especially with the success of our basketball programs, that gets, you know, a little bit better.
0: Yeah. What's interesting, you know, hearing your answer and then talking to a lot of other people is that historically, the donation has been a very tangible thing, right? So you give the money to the university as a requirement to be able to buy either tickets or better tickets. And now what has happened because of the changes in the tax laws is that you've had to offer up more intangible things along with certain tangible items, right? Because the tax break is gone and the tax break was like a huge, um, you know, it was a huge incentive. Um, you know how much have you know how much emphasis do you place on the intangible? because I know that when I'm dealing with a lot of organizations all over the place, it's a tough conversation to have with people sometimes because they don't understand how powerful the intangible value can be to somebody right They're, Everybody's very comfortable with the idea of like, oh this um, you know this is going to buy this or this is going to gain me that. But the intangible yeah. stuff can is to me almost more powerful because it's emotional.
1: Uh, I, I agree with you 100%. And um, like I said, when, you know, when we were selling tickets before, it was as simple as, oh, no, so here's your ticket price, and here's the donation, and it's 80% tax deductible. Well, now we're finding more and more often that we have to explain what that donation is for because people are like, oh, that sounds like a lot of money. It feels like a money grab, right? But it's not. I mean that, that money goes directly into our coffers to help. Build new facilities, and you know, and and renovate current facilities, and, and make the lives of our student athletes a lot better, so that we can keep being competitive. You know, college athletics like an arms race now. Every time you turn around, somebody's building a new facility, and so it's just extremely important that the fan understands where that money's going, um, and at the same time. You know, we have to do a, a good job explaining that and providing, you know, fans with access. You know, one of the best events we do, is something we started a couple of years ago, with our development team, and and we do a, a, a Christmas reception basically every year, and it's only season ticket holder invites. That's one of our most popular events, it's because the only event where a lot of our you know, a lot of our, you know, our boosters and our Pirate Blue members are going to have access and their season ticket mm-hmm. are going to have access to players to see them, get pictures with them. Um, and in the last couple of years, our players have been fantastic and dealing with families and and those types of interactions. Like, that's really what seals the deal for a lot of people. You know, people are still talking to me about it, you know. Oh, we had a great time at the curses party. Are we doing that again? When's that happening? It's like six months away. But it's so important. I'm sorry, it's like three months away now, but it's so important that you know, that we, that we keep that focus and understand that what seems like a small thing to us is actually a really big thing to a lot of people, especially when it comes to assessing our student athletes, shaking their hand and, and, and sort of getting to know them. And, you know, that way when they see them at the game, they say, like, oh, I met that guy. I know that guy. He knows who I am. And so, like I said, those – as we get you know as we get farther into the into, you know, into this new tax law world, um, I think those are going to be the mo- more important things we're going to have to start focusing on and it really explain to people where that money is going.
0: Yeah that's a I mean that's a really good example too because I know that you know it, it probably seems like it's one of I guess let me rephrase that it goes back to one of these ideas that it's something you or me might take for granted right the, the we have access to you know a coach or a player or you know some backstage access or something and we forget that sometimes the people we're dealing with and working with they don't necessarily have that access typically and that access can be very powerful even if it's like completely like something sort of benign like a uh, holiday party right but it still it still creates a feeling of connection and it still helps them tell a story to themselves as far as you know I'm still a part of the university and, you know, my contribution to the university is very powerful and helps do these things because, I mean, that's basically what marketing is, right? It's a, an exchange of ideas.
1: Oh, absolutely. And, and I think it's only going to get tougher over the next couple of years. You know, we already know that, especially when it comes to dealing with young alums, that's something that sort of keeps me up is the, you know, are the are the young alums going to be buying at the same level that my senior owners are buying right now? And so especially with you know the student loan debt a lot of these kids are coming out of school with, you know, I think it's gonna be an even tougher sell than it was to their parents' generation to to get on board and donate because they feel like they've already given so much. And in a sense they have. And I'm not disagreeing with them. But I, you know, we know that young people, you know, we see the studies that show, you know, they're more willing to move jobs and they're more willing to go to places and take less money if, if it means that the, that they're contributing to something. And so I think we're gonna have to start playing to that in the next couple of years, and really emphasizing, you know, the importance of giving and where that money is going, especially considering, like I said, the, the times are certainly a changing.
0: Yeah. And. And I I don't want to beat the development idea to death here, but there, it, it does play back too that like one of the things you have to be smarter about too, or you know in the decision making process is the idea that you just want to get them in the habit of contributing and getting people in the habit of being a, a member of the family, right? Because I think sometimes when you're working in development or you're working on a project of of any nature that requires raising money, is that you feel like the only thing you, you know, you, you you look at the big numbers, and I lord knows I tell people you got to focus on where the big bulk of the money is coming from. But I've also seen, like you said, with the 10% campaign here, and then I don't have the name of it right in front of me, but the campaign that Villanova just did, where it was like their 1862 fund or whatever, where it, the participation levels are just so high that it's invaluable because it's a um you know or you know people just you know they they connect in such a way to their university that you're letting them down if
1: you don't give them the opportunity um, which,
0: and oh, and
1: on top of that on top of that we know that you know we know that athletics has played a pretty good role in their success in that too you know if you look at you know athletic success and something that that we you know we struggle to sort of focus on at times. I think as an industry, but I remember when Rutgers was good a couple of years ago and Ed Gregiano and football was at the top. You know the university giving was up across the board, athletic giving was up. You know a uh, uh, you know a rising tide raises all ships, so if the athletic department can can maximize on that success and make sure they're communicating the vision and promoting their wins you know, both in the classroom and, and from a, a court standpoint, I think it's going to be easier to get people involved. You know, like I said, the, the athletics really, you know, can and should leverage itself to make sure that, that the university knows that, you know, a lot of the, they, you know, they the university itself can really maximize off of the success of the athletic department and, and vice versa.
0: And it. um, And it's this need, like, to make sure that people are, like, engaged early on, though, that, you know, you've talked to me about it a lot, is, you know, the way that you guys attract in millennials or young alums, as, you know, whichever term you want to use. I I hate to make blanket (laughs) statements about millennials. Um, But you've done some really cool experiential things. And can you talk to us a little bit about that? Because I think it, it helps a lot. It helped me understand a little bit of the psychological um, component of creating experiences
1: for fans oh absolutely you know since since i've gotten here but i'm going to my fourth season now going into my second year i really realized we we need to do more from a fan experience front from a group standpoint um you know we, we play in a world-class facility the prudential center in newark new jersey is an unbelievable venue the devils play their largest in arena scoreboard in the country um once again something we take for granted arena access playing on the court you know those those sort of things are are, are really, really powerful to a lot of people. And so, um, you know, we decided we are going to start opening some of that stuff up to groups more than I think we had done and, and focused on before. And we started doing some high five line stuff. We started doing chalk talks. Um, like I said, just to get those younger fans especially engaged in um, in the process. I know a couple, You know, before I got here, we had a, we had a player um, who was an international player, and, and we did a fan group from that player's country, and he came out and did a chalk talk after the game was over. Um, and so it's really about providing those world-class opportunities, not just for the kid, but you know, or the or the group that's coming in, but for you know, their families are, as well. You know, the high-five line especially is huge, and it's not like you know, we usually sell out of our high-five lines pretty quick. You know, people wanting to high-five our team, but we discovered even for big games, you know, people just want to high-five anyway. They want to get on the floor, so we'll actually line them up for the visiting team as well. Um, and so it's those little things that at the end of the day really add up and make that experience memorable and more important than anything, you know, we're not a tremendously large institution, um, and so you know, we can't rely on having massive alumni bases to fill up our gym. So we have to do a better job of getting involved in the local community and, and helping to, you know, to bridge the gap between, um, you know, our alumni base and just building a general fan base in the community of people who wouldn't necessarily have otherwise had an affiliation with our institution.
0: Yeah, and that's interesting because it brings me to a question I wanted to ask you because I know that you are. Um, I don't want to say completely unique, but a little bit unique in the way that you deal with the secondary market. And you almost have, uh, you, you know, you have a much more favorable view of working with the secondary market than a lot of people. How did you develop that philosophy? And like, what are some of the things that you do to make your relationship with the secondary
1: market successful? So I mean I think it's one of those things where I think it, it ultimately resulted in 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 talking to the secondary market and having that actual conversation. I remember a couple of years ago and I, I joke around with Troy Kirby, you know, from the, you know Sports Style about this all the time. And I just remember the first you know Nato convention that we were at. And I remember us having a, a, a session where it was literally just a secondary market roundtable, and it was it was you know a couple of the largest. Ticket brokers and secondary market resellers, and then um, you know the the ticket managers from you know all the institutions that were there. And and I remember you could cut the tension with a knife. It was it, to this day it still makes you laugh. Um, but what was nice was the dialogue that came out of that. You know they were open with us. You know they shared, you know they shared what their margins were. They shared how they made their money. They shared you know the software they were using and how they came up with their prices. And and they were very open about sharing that data with us. And so I reached out to some of those guys after the convention. I was like, look, you know, tell us what our tickets are going for. Maybe we can price our product better and help you price your tickets better. And, and so we, you know, so when I got here, I just, I made that a priority was working with them and, and trying to find ways that we could really be partners. Um, and, and what's really cool is it's been amazing how open and honest and transparent they've been with us. So, you know, we, we have a very small secondary market pool here, um, at Seton Hall, and that's by design. We want to reward the guys who help us out and, and, and are willing to you know, really view it as a partnership. It also helps us control um, the market a little bit better um, and have a better grasp of what the market's doing. It's a little easier to monitor. Um, but those, those companies will share uh, pricing data. Um, they'll share with us um, you know what our tickets are going for, when the you know when sales are spiking, um, and that helps us reprice. We did a massive reprice about two years ago, and we used the data they gave us to reprice because we were leaving a lot of money on the table in some areas, uh, seats that we didn't think were as valuable. They were like, no, these seats are going for good money, and then seats we were overpricing a little bit, they were taking losses on at times. Um, so at the end of the day, it's about just communicating with them, making sure that they feel like they're partners. And just being transparent at telling them what you need, they'll let you know what they need. Um, and and like I said, we view our our secondary market, you know, guys as 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 partners and we really just try to make sure that they feel valued and that that you know they're returning the favor in regards to helping us price our stuff better, which I think in turn will help them price them better. And at the end of the, you know, here's the other thing too that people forget, you know, that a lot of people in our industry refuse to realize. Is that most of our fans are not coming to us first? They're just they're just they're just not. And I and I wish there was a a, a way we could sort of fix that. But with the way you know the secondary markets invested in advertising and sponsorship revenue, um, they are many times the first place a, a person looks. And with the with the price line economy, people assume that we're on there. You know, people assume that we're on StubHub. We're really not. You know, we don't we don't put any inventory on there personally. And so, um. You know, it, it we have to be realistic about where our fans are going and where they're buying. And the more information I can get on that buyer that's going to stop up and finding out what they're paying that I wouldn't have gotten before is only is only gonna be helpful to me and is only gonna help me price my product ultimately, um, you know, ultimately better. And and these and these secondary companies, you know, they really are tech companies that sell tickets, you know, they advertise immensely they have incredible algorithms they know how to find they know how to find my fans and so anything, any advice they can give that helps me to find my fans um and and do a better job of getting at those people directly like i said only in the long run helps me
0: yeah no that, that was a really good an- uh good answer you know not like i'm, try- I'm coaching you up here that's a great <laughs> answer joe uh it, it's interesting to me right because i mean i I, you know, I i spend a lot of time a long time on the secondary market and one of the things that you guys have done, which is, again, I think it's really wise, is the way that you do view it, you do limit the pool of people you work with and you do try to focus on them as partners because I think that one the challenges is, is that so many organizations either think it's an all or nothing proposition, right? Like they, th- they feel like if they work with the secondary market, they have no control over it, which is, you know, you shouldn't ever go into a partnership in that regard, right? If you don't feel like you have any control on it, that's not a partnership, that's being held over a barrel. So you, that's number 1. And you know, you guys limit those, you know, your partnerships and you work with just a select few. But the the bigger thing that you pointed out was like understanding that your fans and your customers aren't coming to you first. But then the, another thing too that isn't always conveyed or understood is the fact that like the buyer that's going to the secondary market to start with or consistently is going usually much different than the person who's going to buy a season package or a season ticket or come to you directly as well. And if you aren't there for them, you're going to miss out on them because the uh, the entertainment options are not limited, especially not in the area of
1: New York and New York. <laughs> Absolutely not. It is, there are many times where it is a a tough sell and with the expansion of TV rights, they have more leverage over game times. So, you know, it's getting harder and harder to find fans, especially when the game times are, are being built more to TV audiences than than, than in arena audiences. But that's, that's not an excuse. We have to figure out how to get how to get that information, and you know, at the same time, you know, a lot of times these companies are able to provide us with customer data. And we can reach out to that that customer and say, "Hey, look, I saw you spent two hundred dollars on tickets for our game against Villanova. You know, what if I told you you could get a season ticket for three eighty? You know, that you know, at the end of the day, that helps us make the season ticket sale and the package sale a lot easier if our fans know and we're we're out there and we're present." letting them know that there are additional options. And I think like I said, the secondary market can only help us with that data. You know, they only can help in providing us an idea of what our tickets are going for. And like I said, that's a big black hole of, of data. I don't have any access to that information if we don't reach these partnerships. Um, and we have done a really good job, like I said, of, of maintaining a smaller pool. So I know exactly what's on the secondary. And what's really great too that people don't understand is, you know, these these secondary you know the secondary market companies are a really tight knit community. You know they're they're not, you know people imagine as a wild wild west. It's really not. You know they, they tend to be really good at self policing. You know they've they actually helped us identify guys who have who have called us and helped you know build fake birthday parties for uh, kids that didn't exist just so they could buy tickets and resell them. You know if I didn't have that partnership and those relationships, I wouldn't have been able to spot those things. We wouldn't have been able to find those things. And so it's it they've ultimately helped us. Maintain pricing integrity better than if we weren't working with them.
0: Yeah, no, that I mean that's a great point, and, and it it really is true because I mean again I, I will lie on you know fall back on my experience which is when I did stuff with American Express when I you know and if everybody knows I was the the person who really kind of pulled together the Centurion Card concierge ticket program. That would shut people down right away. Like you, it would be like one strike and you're out, right? And and most of the legitimate brokers are like that because I think there's this this perception that they're all just trying to um, just flip tickets and make money off the back of the events. But the wise ones and the good partners are ones who have been in business for a long time. They understand the ability to and the need to develop customers, and they have every as much investment as anybody else in making sure that the you know the price integrity is kept, that the customers serve very well, and that the you know um, the experience
1: is awesome. And, and you know for, you know for the customer, especially for that customer who's buying on on a secondary site, like I said, they're used to the price line model where you know everything, everybody's listed on everything. You know every airline's listed on price line. They assume we're on there, so people will come to our windows if they have an issue with a with a, a ticket they bought on the secondary, and they want to blame us because they think we're on there. Um, And so the the more we can sort of limit that pool, the more we can monitor that pool, the more we can – it makes it easier for us to track down issues and ultimately resolve customer needs in a way that we wouldn't have been able to do before.
0: And you kind of touched on it a a few minutes ago, and I want to ask you one like sort of specific question here, which is like you talked about being able to make your – use the data and make it actionable. And what I have – from a lot of conversations I have, I know people struggle with that. Can you give me a little bit of an idea about how you guys go through the process of making sure that the data you get back
1: it becomes something that you use? Okay. So, you know, for, for the, there's this, you know, there's a lot of, you know, everybody wants to talk about big data, big data, big data. But here's the thing most people don't know how to use it. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not a computer dork. Uh, I, I don't know how to use it necessarily in the best way. So, for us, you know, we use that data just to come up with our pricing. So, we'll take all the numbers at the end of the year from our secondary partners, we'll look at, at sales trends, look at when tickets sold. Where the tickets were selling first, uh, because what we consider to be a prime seat might not necessarily be a prime seat for our customer or might not be uh, the original price range that that initial customer base is looking for. Um, And then, so from then, you know, from there, we just ultimately start adjusting price by price. We look at, you know, obviously what the upper, we don't, you know, obviously we don't want to charge the most upper echelon price for a a center court seat, even for one of our bigger games, because that might've been an outlier. Uh, So we just look at the general mean median pricing and and we try to develop a a ticket pricing system that we think ultimately is going to make buying a ticket appetizing to our fans. um, And then also make... You know, buying a season ticket or a mini plan much more reasonable because obviously we want people to buy packages, uh, and so whatever we can do to make those you know those season ticket plans, those mini plans, more appetizing to the fans through a, a, a single game pricing structure that makes sense, you know, we're we're going to do that. And so in that regards, that that's where we use most of our data is just from a pricing standpoint.
0: No, that's really good. So you have really narrowed down the focus of how you want to use data in a way so that you can really focus and specialize in that one area so that like, even though there's tons and tons of data, you have a specific question you're asking of the data and it gives you back a specific answer. Am I, or am I misinterpreting that?
1: No, 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 you're absolutely right. And the data you got last year to develop our pricing structure was really helpful. And I think we got it so on point. We didn't have to increase prices this year for single game prices. We were, we pretty much nailed it last year. Like I said, it would have been a big guessing game if we didn't have access to that data. It would have been a huge guessing game. We never would have been able to get that close. And and like I said, just getting that data, you know, I talk all the time about how much money you're leaving on the table from customers that are already buying our tickets. So last year we had three or four sellouts. Just from the additional pricing data that we got from the secondary market and being able to sort of maximize each price level – we took the same sell you had before, and we got forty percent more revenue out of them. We're not doing anything different other than adjusting our prices so they make more sense um, based on what our customers are willing to pay, and we got forty percent more revenue. So for, for me, that's the the biggest sign of success. Is you know, people look at you know their you know a ticket sales or an assistant ad for tickets is going to look at you know his big board and his pie chart, he's going to try to figure out you know where to. You know, where, where, where you know, and we too often, we look for the one big thing that's going to generate, you know, more money. But at the end of the day, it's a bunch of little things. You know, maybe if we up the price here, we change this price, you know, we, we go after this a little bit more. You know, that's where the 40% comes from. We didn't get to 40% by changing one price. We got to 40% by changing literally 24 different price types to a point where we thought it made it more appetizing to our fans to buy those tickets.
0: Yeah, and that 40% thing coming by an accumulation of small steps, I mean, that's a really important lesson that people need to learn. I know that I probably have bored you with the story that I'm going to share now many times before, but about when I started out in nightclubs and we were trying to raise our check average from $13 to 13 25 a quarter, right, because we knew that would make a huge difference. And it was as simple as asking the question of what gin would you prefer in your gin and tonic? And the same process has applied pretty much everywhere I've looked, right? It's like not some big home run that you're, that's necessarily going to make all the difference. It's being a little more thoughtful in a bunch of different ways that always helps. And, you know, and this is exactly what I'm talking about, right? It's like you just add, you know, make a couple pricing adjustments here or there. And next thing you know, you've made 40% more, which, you know, you keep messing around. We're talking real money there.
1: Yeah, and I can't emphasize enough the concept of working a customer up the ladder. You know, that's something that I that I was taught in Maryland baseball, and something that I've carried with me. You know, from you know, there's a, there's only a five to ten dollar price difference. Between the ticket you have and the next price level, so we designed it so that it made it simpler and easier for customers to say, Oh, well, I've only five bucks more, I can get this a little bit better of a seat. Once again, it's those little things that ultimately add up to create the big success story. It's not one big idea or one big night. It's it's taking getting three percent out of this, four percent out of this, and ultimately, if you do that enough to enough different things you maximize your revenue, you're going to get to the numbers you want.
0: Well, you said maximize your revenue there, and, and what you're talking about though is not necessarily maximizing it at every touch point. It's maximizing revenue in a way that the customer, and in your case, maybe the alumni and the fan, doesn't necessarily feel used either. Because you, the thing, I think the thing that gets missed a lot in the conversation, especially these days around sports, is that too often it seems like you're trying to maximize every touch point. Whereas like what you're really trying to do, at least from my point of view is I want to maximize the lifetime customer value
1: and no, I, oh, I, absolutely. And and it's, it's something that we've started to focus on here a little bit. We've made our, our, um, our, our customer service element much more, um, customer service rep based. So if you get an invoice, the first invoice you get for basketball season is going to have your customer rep's name on it. And um, you're, going to get an, you're going to get at least three or four touch points in your ticket sales rep before the season even starts. And like, that's another thing that I think we need to focus on too, is the relationship element. People are only going to buy from people that they trust. And ultimately that's what you talk about, that the lifetime customer revenue that customers gonna generate, we have they have to be able to know that they trust us that the rep they're dealing with is 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 thinking about them first and foremost and their needs and isn't trying to use them to, to get commission. That they have to be able to trust that person. And today's day and age, like I said, the experiential element is is going to be an even bigger element. And it's not just accessible by a phone. You know, we have a live chat feature that every rep is on right now. You know, they have the reps have to be accessible wherever the customer is. And so you know when you talk about lifetime customer, you know, that that comes to mind is the idea of of having a relationship with us and making sure that the rep they're dealing with is someone they can trust.
0: Yeah, uh, that's just a fantastic example because, you know, I know from talking to people who buy tickets, the frustration level that they feel when they have a new rep or they're they're dealing with every quarter, you know, or every month, even in some cases, Um, continuity, right? Because again, again, the turnover in, in most sports is like so um, aggressive now that it, you know, it's no wonder that a lot of professional teams are struggling to sell tickets because, you know, as a consumer, you're like going, ah, who am I going to be dealing with this time? So I don't necessarily feel the same, um, need to make a large purchase or an investment in the organization because I don't feel like the investment's being returned, you know? So like hearing these kind of things, you know, is, is really, um, it's interesting and
1: exciting because I know that the relationship will win over the long term. Oh, absolutely, and it's something like you know we, that th- we don't do a very good job in the sports industry of thinking of it. I think it's because we always have this endless supply of young, hungry workers who want to get into the sports, but we don't re- necessarily realize. I think about all the companies I've dealt with over the course of my life, and you know, for example, the construction people my mom use, my mom, and my dad use in their house. They've been using that person for twenty years. They don't use that person. Because if they're being used, they use that person because they have a relationship with them. It's not transactional at this point. They go to that person because they know they can trust that person. It may cost a little more than the average, you know, than the average Joe they could they could find on the internet. But that person's valuable to them. I look at like you know the grocery store my parents go to. They go to that grocery store because they know the manager. He's been there for 20 years. And so we need we need to do a better job at realizing that, you know, the, we are not different than any other business in the sense that we're not even business. You know, we're a nonprofit. It's even more important to us. The revenue goes a lot farther and directly benefits our student athletes, That continuity is so important. And you want that relation you want that customer relationship to be more relational than transactional. And you, it, it takes time. And that, that's, that's why turnover in this industry is, is, is in the long run hurting us because, you know, we're, we're, the results aren't matching, you know, you know, we can have sales reps go lower but at the end of the day, if, if that customer is buying season tickets for one or two years and leaves, then, then, you know, really, at the end of the day, what did that rep do? He didn't build a relationship. Didn't it ultimately didn't result in the lifetime revenue that you want? And so, how much money do we cost ourselves in the short term trying to save money, giving a kid fresh out of school who may not, you know, who who may be a little more wet behind the years and, and might not be might not be asking for the type of money that that a more experienced sales rep's going to get. The end of the day, you have to ask yourself, you know, what's what's the cost worth? And that's something I don't think we do as an industry um, enough.
0: Yeah, I mean, to me, you're doing everybody a disservice, right? You're doing your you're doing your organization a disservice. You're doing your fan base a disservice, and you're doing those kids a disservice, right? Because they're not getting off to, in their career on a good start, right? They're not getting necessary. They're not able to acquire the skills or the, um, focus and the discipline that they need, or maybe they are getting disciplined, you know, they're getting stuff, but they're not being set up to ultimate success. And I see so many of these kids, they get burned out or they get, um, you know, screwed over in these roles because, you know, the idea is that like, we have this endless supply of young kids who really, really, really love sports and they want to work in sports and, um, you know, who cares if we burn them out? And, you know, to me, that's just, that's, that's just awful.
1: Yeah, and, and it's something like I said we need to work on, especially as we move into this this new era where we're finding that people really value re, you know relationships. You see on t- p- Twitter all the time people you know going on Twitter and, and talking to their company, you know talking to their company, complaining, good things like that's it may not seem relational because it's on Twitter, but they reach out to the company on a social media platform. It's relational at that point, point. and so we need to understand that that if we want people to be customers you know customers for life and seasoned anglers for life. And partners for you know value partners in our in our industry that we're going to have to start treating them with a more relational mindset versus a transactional.
0: Yeah, and and that really kind of leads into the last thing because I, I don't want to miss touching on it before we go, which is your work with Natsa, right? And I know that it's very important to you because it's a way for you to give back. And I think that you know from my understanding of what you do and working with you on some of these things, is that. Kind of putting setting everybody up for success and long term success has really been like a key focus
1: of what you've been doing at NATSO. Um, Am I I'm not misstating that, am I? No, 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 no. NATSO is for those who don't know, NATSO is the National Association of Ticket Sales and Operations. So um, it's part of the NACTA umbrella, which is the National Association of Collegiate Directors of Athletics. And so we have an organization in there. I think we're going into our fourth or fifth year now. Um, And uh, really, we are you know, the I want to say trade group, so to speak, but the you know the, the the ticketing voice for for collegiate athletics and and you know this past convention we had you know r- roughly 200 ticket professionals there and and really it's about you know one it's about obviously learning how to succeed in your industry best practices is huge for us at our convention and within our organization we're constantly sharing information we're constantly talking to each other trying to find ways to to grow and improve personally and professionally. Um, but on top of that, it, it gets us all in the room together. We can talk about the issues that are t- playing our industry. We can talk to our colleagues. You know, I really do believe – I use biblical references a lot because so my dad's a, uh, a pastor. You know, the, the concept of iron sharpens iron, right? Like, you're only going to get better if you're in a room with people who are, who are smarter and, and better than you. And so every time I go, I, I meet somebody new who is incredible and has a wealth of knowledge that I don't have or has a new idea that I didn't think of. And, um, and so the organization, like I said, Natso. you can go to natso.com, N-A-A-T-S-O and, and look it up and, and, um, and see all the stuff we're doing. Like I said, from a, from a, just from a, a, a professional development standpoint, we really are an amazing organization. Um, and it's, it's not just ticket people, you know, there's secondary market people there now there's, you know, sales trainers all in the same community, just trying to help each other improve and, and get better. And we appreciate you coming this year and, and, and talking and, and, and really at the end of the day, it's about building up our ticket reps. You know, you know, ticket professionals aren't necessarily always the best. I, I can speak from that personally as well at, at, rem, at reminding, reminding others of our value um, and reminding our organizations of the value that we have. And so really it's about re-emphasizing um, the important role we play in our organization and making sure that everybody is set up uh, to succeed within our ticketing industry.
0: Yeah, and, I, and that iron um, sharpens iron analogy, I think, is very good. And because what I really appreciated about what you guys were doing there was that there was this like real focus on learning. Because you know sometimes you go to these conferences and it's all just a big pitch fest. For like sponsors and stuff, and that was like not the not at all the uh, the case at you know NACTA overall, but especially at NASA, it was like really really focused on relationships and networking and everybody coming together and learning from each other. And I and I think it's really great. And you guys do like some you know I know again this is a little bit inside baseballish thing, but I know we're like um you guys have like a bunch of other really cool stuff that you're doing to make sure that people get their education you know, at the conference, but then it extends throughout the year. And, you know, and I think that's really important because, um, you know, you do need to bring in a diversity of opinions and a diversity of ideas to be able to, um, make sure that people are getting a broad and well-rounded education. Joe, where can everybody find you on the internet?
1: Um, so you can find me obviously on LinkedIn, Joe Rickson. I'm always available. They can also email me. Um, yeah, I'm pretty receptive to email, um, and I get back to you really quick, joseph.rickson, joseph.rickson, R I X O N, at shu.edu. And, um, and of course on Twitter, at Joey Rick. So, if, like I said, if you have any questions or you need additional information or you want to find out about some of the things that we're doing, and like I said, we're we're behind in many ways too. So, I'd love to hear what other people are doing as well. And and if you need any information or you want to hear about some of the things that we're doing, maybe you can implement them where you're at, feel free to reach out to me. I'm, like I said, I'm, I'm more than willing to talk to any other, uh, uh fellow ticketing professional little brotherhood you got going on.
0: Hey, Joe, man. Thank you so much for being on the episode.
1: Uh, thank you again, Dave. Really appreciate it.
0: I want to take the time once again to thank my guest, Joe Rickson from Seton Hall University. If you hear this episode before October 23rd, I am offering a free webinar called differentiate you about how you can make your brand and your business's brand stand out in the market differentiation to me is the key idea that's going to drive your business forward to find out how to sign up get signed up for the the webinar send me an email dave at dave Wakeman.com with the new or with the headline new uh, webinar i'll get you signed up for the webinar i'll get you added to the newsletter uh, we'll get you all set and straight to find out more about what i'm up to you can visit my website. It's www.davewakeman, where you can find my blog, where I try to blog almost every day. You can also follow me on Twitter. That's at David Wakeman. Dot, or at David Wakeman. You can hit me up on LinkedIn. And if you like what I'm doing with the podcast, if you like these conversations, if you've been learning stuff, I'd love it if you'd subscribe. I'd love it if you'd share it with your friends and colleagues and coworkers and I'd love it if you'd leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you find the podcast. It would mean a lot to me. It would help the podcast reach a larger audience and become even more influential and help me continue to have such great conversations. And finally, once again, I want to thank my sponsor, Booking Protect, the worldwide leader in refund protection. To find out how you can work with... Booking Protect to offer your customers a better buying experience, greater peace of mind in their purchases, and get a potential new revenue stream for your organization, visit www.bookingprotect.com. Until next time, thank you so much for listening, and I'll talk to you again soon. Take it easy.